0: I want to remind you that we have some companion resources back there, the um, CDs and the books. Probably have a new round of those for you coming up real soon. And uh, according to my outline, I'm going to be moving on from this eschatological section of the teaching onto the section of the lordship controversy coming up uh, as soon as we finish this section. So... You may have had a lot of questions as we came through the passage in Romans, and we talked a lot about justification by faith, but then we never really did stop and define what faith is and and what the product of faith is, and so there's a lot of questions that arise from that, which we're going to be dealing with when we talk about the lordship controversy, which is basically, Jesus is not just a savior, he's also the Lord. And when you receive the savior, you receive him as Lord. And so there is the obedience of faith that comes with true saving faith that God gives. And so, if you will, we'll talk about how that fleshes out and, and um, try to deal with that controversy. And the reason it's a controversy, of course, is because it's something that in the modern evangelical church is another way in which the Word of God has been attacked. And um, it, it is a device of Satan. Uh, to attack a central theme in the gospel and in the word of God. And so we're going to spend some time looking at that and, and sorting through it. Okay? With that, let's pray. God, our Father, we are grateful that indeed you are a king. And uh, that even our Lord Jesus is the king, the great king. God forever blessed. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see the gospel as a proclamation of your kingship, a proclamation of your kingdom. And I pray, God, that you would give us a grasp on on what exactly that encompasses, what the scope of that is. Help us to see clearly in the scripture this day the gospel of the kingdom. And so, God, I pray also that we would treasure these things, that we would look to these things with reverence and with awe, that we would hunger and thirst for more knowledge concerning these things. Give us clarity in our understanding and help us to see uh, um, how you have expressed the gospel in your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place with all your holy family. And we thank you for the freedom that we have to freely proclaim your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so with that, we've uh, been talking, um, starting last week, about the gospel of the kingdom, or if you will, that there is an element in the gospel that is eschatological, in the sense that it deals with the fulfillment of all things. And, and so, if you will, the gospel is proclaiming to us a kingdom. And it brings to us the message of a kingdom. And, of course, we talked about that being the rule of God. And that the gospel is conferring on us the rule of God. And uh, last week we, we talked about that to some extent. We were on page 76 there of your handouts. And talked about the fact that the gospel proclaims a king and a kingdom. So that in in uh, Matthew 4.23 and also in Matthew 24.14, it is actually called the gospel of the kingdom. And you recall how I told you that Matthew presents Jesus as the coming king, the Messiah, the king. And because of that, there's a lot of references in Matthew to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, which are synonymous, and then also the um, the fact that Jesus is presented to us as a king. And so, if you will, the gospel is this announcement of his kingdom. And uh, even this was the message that Jesus preached when he came, and the first words out of his mouth in his public ministry effectively were, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we talked about the fact that repentance... And the summons to repentance is really the first word of the gospel because the gospel is proclaiming God, even the Lord Jesus, as king. And the fact that men go on in their sins is something that's abhorrent to God. And when God brings his rule, sin will be no more. When God's rule has reached its climax, sin will be no more. So right now we're in a time period where God is still allowing men the freedom to go on in their sin, but as we have said, has swung open the doors of mercy through the gospel and called men to voluntary repentance. Amen? Mm -hmm. And so this gospel that we preach is a summons for men to repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be reconciled to God. Amen? Amen. But in so doing, we're also warning them that there are serious consequences for not responding to the gospel. Amen? And so as we said last week, that God had overlooked the sins committed beforehand, right? In the language of um, Romans 3, or also uh, in Acts 17, verse 30. Uh, Therefore, it says having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. And so the gospel comes with a summons to repentance. And in that sense then, it is a warning. And so we said that the gospel is a warning. Okay? Now remember I've been telling you that there's really only one gospel. And at its core, it's rather simple. Right? But it comes to us in many forms. It comes to us... Because it has all of these elements to it, okay? And so in this sense, the gospel is a warning, okay? There's a sense in which it's an invitation, right? For instance, Jesus said, I think it's in Matthew 11:28. he says, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, uh, right? Uh, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am meek and I'm humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, right? And so in that sense the gospel is an invitation. It's an invitation to find rest from the heavy burden of sin. Amen. But in this sense, the summons to repentance is a warning. And so the gospel is a warning. Why? Because it comes with consequences. Consequences. It comes with sanctions if it's not received, okay? And so, if you will, we talked about uh, there at the top of page 77 the fact that the gospel is a warning. And we looked at some of the s- severe uh, consequences that are warned in the gospel. And so that brought us to this discussion about the fact that the kingdom has more than just this element of God's rule when it's expressed in the New Testament, okay? Okay. And this is going to be where we take off here today. The, the kingdom has three ways in which it is expressed in the New Testament, generally speaking. Okay, The first way, and this we talked about last week, is that the kingdom is expressed as God's reign, his authority, his sovereign rule as king. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about his realm of authority, right? And so, there are many times in the text of the New Testament when the kingdom of God is mentioned, that it is it is using the, the term in this sense. In what sense? In the sense of God's rule, his reign, his realm of authority, okay? And so, it talks about his right and his sovereign authority to rule, and um However, there are other ways in which the gospel is expressed. And so the first one is, is that it is God's rule. And so when the kingdom is mentioned in many places, it's mentioned as God's rule. And it's referring to the fact that it is the realm of God's rule. However, uh, according to number two there at the bottom of your handout on on, uh, page 77, the kingdom is the present realm into which we may now enter to experience the blessings of his reign. Okay? And so the kingdom of God is spoken of in terms of being a present realm. And when we say present, we're talking about time. This is a reference to time. Okay? So that the realm of God's rule is now present. Okay? Okay? That's what we mean. And and we're going to look here at some scriptures. But then also, thirdly, the kingdom is a future realm which will come only with the return of our Lord Jesus Christ into which we will then enter and experience the fullness of his reign. Okay? So the kingdom is also spoken of in terms of a future realm. So it's important to know this because... When you're looking at different passages that talk about the kingdom of God, they may be using the sense in in a different tense, in a different sense. The meaning of the word takes on a different meaning. And I'm going to show you that in scripture, okay? The reason why this is important for you to know about the gospel is because people have a lot of questions when you start preaching in the gospel. And you open up a huge can of worms, Right? Especially because people have heard so many different things, and, and most people don't really read their Bible, so they don't really know what it says, and they have so many questions, and when you start talking about things like the kingdom of God, uh, they may think you're, you're, you're uh, somewhat schizophrenic if you say to them, well, the kingdom of God is something that we, we now live in and under. But then a few sentences later, you may say, when the kingdom of God comes. And then they're saying, now wait a minute, I thought you already said it was here. So what do you mean, right? Well, it's important that you know what you mean by that. And it's important that you know what the scripture means when it uses the kingdom in those different expressions so that you can answer these questions for people, right? Not only that, well, it's, it's, it's our kingdom too, right? We've come into the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom we live in. And so we ought to understand its nature. Amen? Amen? Okay, so with that, let's look at number two. At the bottom of page 77, the kingdom, should say, is the present realm into which we may now enter to experience the blessings of his reign. When Jesus came preaching the kingdom, he told us that it was now at hand. In Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus came preaching this message. The kingdom of heaven is now at hand. It's here. It has arrived in the person of the king. Amen? Or in Luke seventeen twenty and 21 there it says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. Now you see what they were questioning him about? When the kingdom of God was coming, he answered and said to them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Amen? Now, how do you suppose that is? Well, let me suggest that when Jesus spoke these words, he was the king. And the kingdom of God was in their midst, even in his own presence as the king. Amen? Amen? Amen. Um, the point of the matter is, is that the kingdom of God is the realm of God. Okay? And the realm of God exists in eternity. It's not subject to time and space. So when they ask Jesus a question like, when is the kingdom going to come? Right? Right? He could have answered that question a lot of ways. One way he could have said, well, the kingdom has always been. Amen? That would have been a true statement. Right? Instead he chose to answer the question like this. The kingdom is now in your midst. Amen? And so if you will, the kingdom exists. The question is, in this gospel age, are you surrendered to the rule of the king? Or are you a rebel force? Are you with me? Are you with me? (laughs) Because ultimately, that's all that matters in the world. That is the most important thing. And that is how you stand in relationship to God the King, who holds your next breath in His hands. Who providentially doles out your days. And has numbered them according to His own good pleasure. Amen? Amen? And so it's a very important matter. Where you stand in relation to the kingdom of God. Or where you stand in relation to the rule of God and to His authority and His sovereign reign. Amen? And uh, I would suggest that now is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. And God has appointed a day when He's going to judge the world in righteousness through the man whom He has appointed. And He's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. Amen? Of these things we've all we've all seen the, the, the witness of history. Amen. Jesus' bones aren't in a grave somewhere. Amen? And so the point of the matter is the kingdom of God is here. It's in our midst. As he taught, he described the kingdom as something we could now enter or not enter based on certain conditions. Consider John three five. There he, he said to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus talked about entering into the kingdom of God. And here he gives a qualification for entering into the kingdom of God, which is what? Being born again. Right? In fact, in verse 3 he said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. And so the kingdom of God was something to be seen, according to Jesus. Or something in verse 5 to be entered. Are you with me? Or, or in Luke eighteen seventeen, he said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. So here he talks about receiving the kingdom and entering the kingdom. Are you with me? And so he described it as something that had now come and that he was its chief representative because the kingdom had now arrived. For instance, in Matthew twelve twenty-eight, he said, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is what Jesus is saying. Here I am in your presence as the king. And in this context here, he's casting out demons, Right? And they're accusing him of doing it by the prince of the demons. And he says, no, I've done it by the spirit of God. And because of that fact, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is, again, what he's announcing. He's announcing that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of the king, whom he is. Okay? And so it also is expressed in terms of our present state having been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God. This is a statement of fact that comes from Colossians 1.13 where Paul says in the past tense, For he delivered us from the what? The domain of darkness. You see these terms? The domain. Domain is the same as a realm, is it not? And the domain speaks of what? A dominion. And the dominion speaks of what? An authority. Right? And Paul says that we were delivered from the domain, the dominion, the authority of what? Of darkness. And transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is a past tense event for all who are born again. They have been delivered from the domain, the authority, the rule of darkness, and transferred from that domain into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And so the kingdom is spoken of in these terms. It's a present reality that we enter into when we willingly surrender to His rule. Right? This is the outward evidence that we truly have been born again. We repent of our sins and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? This is the outward evidence that we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. That's the outward evidence. That's how we know. That's how we're assured that our faith is real faith. Right? We look at our life and what do we see? Repentance and faith. Okie doke. Okay then, so the kingdom is number one, God's reign, his authority, his sovereign rule as king, it is number two, expressed many times in the New Testament, as a present realm into which we may now enter to experience the blessing of his reign, but number three, it's also expressed as a future realm, which will come only with the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, into which we will then enter and experience the fullness of his reign, okay, The kingdom of God is also expressed in terms of its future fulfillment and the fact that it is yet to come. So remember how we have said that the kingdom is now, but not yet. Remember that? So now you kind of get a little clearer understanding what we mean when we talk like this. The kingdom of God is now. It's a present realm into which we can now enter, right? As Jesus said. If we're born of the water and the spirit, right? We can enter the kingdom of God, right? However, the kingdom is spoken of in terms in the New Testament of something that is yet to come. So let's take a look at that. As Jesus taught of the kingdom, he would speak of it not only in terms of its present reality, but also in terms of it being yet future. For instance, Matthew 25, 34, he said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So in this sense, at the second coming of Christ, which is this passage in Matthew 24 is what we call the Olivet Discourse, right? Matthew 24 and 25. And in that passage there, Jesus is teaching about what? The, the, the signs of the end of the age, right? Right? When all things would be fulfilled, he's answering the questions that the disciples posed to him there. And so he's talking about future events. and, um, and there he, he says that there's going to come a point in time when he's going to sit on his throne and he's going to judge he's going to be there in the glory of all his, uh, uh, the glory of his father with all of his angels, right? Matthew 25 verse one. And he's going to separate the nations before him, the sheep from the goats, right? He's going to say to those on his right, come and do what? Inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you. So there is going to be a future inheritance of the kingdom for those who are in right standing with Christ. Amen? And so in that sense, the kingdom is something yet to be experienced, yet to be inherited in all of its fullness. Okay? Or how about in Luke twenty-two seventeen? He says, And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. So here again, here's the king, and he's in the presence of the disciples, and he's speaking about the kingdom of God as something that is yet to come. Are you with me? And so you have to, pay attention to these words in their context to understand how they're being used and how the expression is. Are you with me? Sometimes the kingdom is a present reality. Sometimes the kingdom is yet to come. And in this case, Jesus is talking about, of course, fellowshipping with wine and with his disciples. When the kingdom of God comes, a future time, a future thing in history that is yet to be experienced. And so the kingdom of God is looked at by Jesus as something which is yet to come. Or the apostles would speak of it as something yet to be inherited in the future or something yet to be entered into. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Paul makes a very familiar statement there. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And so here, Paul is teaching a very basic truth, right? You, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God unless you repent of your sins. Okay? Okay? And so the point of the matter is is that the kingdom is something yet to be inherited. right? Or in uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4.18, he says, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so there, even Paul, who's going about preaching the gospel of the kingdom... Here makes a statement that he will yet be delivered into the heavenly kingdom of God. Amen? You see that? And so the scripture uses the, the term uh, and expresses the term of the kingdom of God in something that is yet future. Okay? That's because it has entered now, as I told you before, in a certain spiritual sense, but has not yet reached its climax. Okay? And so the language will speak about it in these paradoxical terms. People trip over this all the time. False teachers take this kind of things and they go and they twist it. You know? And and the fact of the matter is there's a tension between these two things as you examine these terms in Scripture they mean different things in a different context. Are you with me? But you see, it doesn't change the nature of the kingdom. Because it's only to what level or degree that the kingdom has broken into time and space right now. Because you see... Let me kind of maybe draw a picture here that might help explain this but we, we live on earth we live in time and space right so here we are going along on a timeline here's the cross here's the end of the age right and uh, we we're, you know here we are going along in this timeline in space and uh, the fact of the matter is God's kingdom has always existed. Amen? God's rule, God's authority, God's reign has always existed. Why? Because he's the king. He's the creator of everything. He's the creator of everything that can be named. Right? There was a time when nothing existed except God. And there came a point in time when God created time and he created everything that exists. Right? And so God created time. But you see, God's realm, God's authority is outside of time. It's in eternity. This is where the kingdom of God is. If you want to use it in terms of where, which is another kind of a funny thing, right? Because because what did God create here, right? He created time and space, right? And matter. Are you with me? All of these things are within the creation of God. But God transcends the creation, He's in the ultra-natural realm. He's outside of the creation, right? Even angels will fall within here. And and, and angels uh, angels are even, they transcend the physical, natural creation. And they're in the supernatural realm, right? But God transcends even the supernatural realm. He's in the ultra-natural realm. God is above everything He created. Okay, are you with me? And so the, the, the fact of the matter is God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign exists and transcends everything, including time, space, and matter. Okay? And and including any other created thing that might be of a supernatural quality. God transcends that. Right? So the kingdom of God is something that's that's always existed and will always exist. However, in the incarnation, what happened? In this eschatological sense, the king, he came and he became a man. He took on flesh and blood. The word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, the word came flesh and dwelt among us. What happened? The eternal God entered into time, space, and matter. And he became matter. He became a man. He took on human flesh and entered into time and space. What happened? The kingdom of God came in the person of the king and broke into time and space. Are you with me? So, Jesus only exercised a certain amount of authority while he was here. Give an example. He's before Pilate. They're about to beat him up and kill him. Right? And what does he say to Pilate? He says, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you. Right? Or he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would fight. Right? And his his point is, look, man, I'd call 10,000 angels right now, and you'd be toast, fella. Right? But what was happening? Well, Jesus was only exercising a certain amount of authority. Why? Because he's fulfilling God's eternal plan of redemption. And you look back in history, and we see exactly what that was. And we look into the prophecy of Scripture, and we see exactly what it will is yet to be, right? And we're somewhere right here in the middle right now, right? And and the, the fact of the matter is that the authority of the kingdom of God has entered into time and space, but it has not reached its climax. True. How do we know that? There's still sin. There's still rebels everywhere right? Men, men still kill each other. They do all kinds of horrible things to one another, right? And so the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the authority of the kingdom of God has now broken into time and space, but only to a certain level or degree, okay? So when the scripture speaks of the kingdom of God, which is yet to come, it's, it's talking about the climax of the kingdom. It's talking about the fulfillment of the kingdom. It's talking about a point in time in history when the kingdom is going to reach a much more fuller sense. Okay, And this is where prophetic language gets rather tricky because we have what's called the prophetic perspective, which is you may be reading a scripture that's a prophetic revelation of something that's yet to be, and what may be pictured in that, that prophecy may be events that happen in the fulfillment of time over a long period of time, okay? Um, one of these days I'm going to have a whole class or several classes trying to explain that to you about apocalyptic literature, okay? It's not an easy concept to get, but what what happens is, is that the scripture may, may make a statement in a paragraph that, sh, that has certain events in it that not necessarily happen all at one time, although it sounds like in the language of the scripture that that's all happening at one time because it's all encompassed in one little section of text. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, it may take a very long time for that to happen. For instance, in the Old Testament when it talks about the day of the Lord, right? Everybody familiar with the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of God's wrath, right? And there's a there's a there's a coming time when every high mountain is going to be made low, and the pride of man is going to be decimated, right? And and uh, the humble are going to be lifted up, right? And uh, the fact of the matter is, the day of the Lord is actually going to be a day. It's going to be one day, and guess what? It's also one age. Okay, so that when the scripture in the Old Testament is speaking about the day of the Lord it may be talking about this one day in the day of history right? when Christ returns and with the brightness of his coming he destroys the Antichrist and sets his enemies to flight and establishes his earthly kingdom however there is another whole section of scriptures that talks about the day of the Lord as an age where they will do things like beating their swords into plowshares Right, and in that day, right, they will no longer train for war. What's it talking about? Now it's talking about in that day, not on that day. You see, and so it's speaking about an age. It's speaking about a long period of time. And so, the day of the Lord in different prophetic passages can can be talking about one day or a whole age. And sometimes there'll be a whole text of scripture where that one little paragraph of scripture may talk about things that happen on the one day and in the same language it's talking about things that happen during the age so that the day of the Lord becomes this entire period of time that we call the millennium and there is a certain day in history when that is uh, inaugurated and there's a certain day in history when that is consummated and so the Old Testament apocalyptic language may be expressing one or the other or something in between. Okay? And if we were to spend a lot of time analyzing this language, you'd see exactly what I'm telling you about. But I'm trying to tell you to get this sense that the Scripture uses words in different terms. The kingdom of God is expressed in these different ways. Okay? It is either God's rule. It is either a present reality into which we may now enter, or a future thing that is yet to come. Okay? And you need to be sensitive to that when you're reading about the kingdom of God in the New Testament. So then, furthermore, the kingdom has different stages of its fulfillment as it reaches its climax in history. Okay? Of this fact, the Bible has much to say. I want to emphasize that. Of this fact, what fact? that the kingdom of God has different stages of fulfillment in history. Okay, The Bible has much to say. There are many prophecies in the Bible describing these different stages of fulfillment and events that yet shall be in the future as we see the kingdom of God unfold in the course of world history. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 23 and 24, there's a scripture there that talks about all the ages of history... I want to show you this. All in one little passage of scripture. So here we are, time and space. Here's the cross. Okay? I'm just going to draw this here again. Let's call this the millennial period. We'll call this the eternal kingdom. And let's look at the scripture there. It says... I'm going to open my Bible and read that to you. Because I'm going to go back a verse there. 1 Corinthians 15, starting back in verse 22. Here's what it says. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Okay? Okay? What's his point? Well, everybody who is in Adam, which is who? Everybody. They all die. Right? But everybody that's in Christ, who is that? Christians. Everybody who's been born again by the Spirit of God shall be made alive. That's Paul's point. Everybody dies in Adam, but everybody who is in Christ will be made alive. But look what he says here. But each in his own Order. Now what's Paul talking about? He's talking about how in Christ everyone's going to be made alive, but each in his own order. Okay? How in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Okay? Now look what he says there. He says, Christ the first fruits. Okay? Now who's the first to be made alive? Christ. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, right? Now, when did that happen? Give me a date. When did that happen? On the 1st of 33 AD. Okay, there we go. So, shortly after the cross, right? Namely, three days later, <laughs> right? Christ was made alive. Okay? He was the first fruits of the resurrection. And the order of this resurrection is He's first. That's why He says, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. And then look what it says. After that, after this, after Christ being made alive, right? What's it say? Those who are Christ's at His coming. Now, what's he talking about? When people are going to be made alive. And in their order. When's it going to happen? It's going to happen after that. After that, when? At Christ's coming. Okay? So here, at the second coming of Christ, right? The Christians are going to be made alive. Okay, those who are Christ's, that's what the scripture says right there, right? Those who are Christ's at His coming. So, if you will, at His coming, those who are Christ's. Now, just for the sake of not trying to be a post-tribber on you here, even though I am one, (laughs) <laughs> Even if you're a pre-tribber, right, then you, of course you believe in a secret rapture and you believe that there's actually a 7-year period here and 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 that so that this resurrection is actually happening 7 years before the second coming. So if you're a pre-tribber, that's how you hold that position. Okay? And I want to qualify that that that's not my argument here. My argument here is the kingdom of God has different stages of fulfillment in history. And this is a passage in Scripture where in an eschatological perspective we're told about the resurrection. And look what it's saying. It's saying that each will happen in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, and then, he says, comes the end, right? When he delivers up the kingdom of uh, the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Now tell me, when is that? When when sin ends, when he's abolished all rule and authority and power, and all his enemies have been put under his feet. When is that, family? That's right there. Right? Revelation twenty, verses seven through ten. Right? And so the fact of the matter is, there's gonna you know, here's this passage in First Corinthians and it opens up the whole scope of history for us. And it talks about when this resurrection is going to happen and when is going to come the end. This is going to be the end when everything is abolished and it's all under the feet of Christ. Okay? of course, there's more language after this in the passage that goes on to describe uh, Christ handing over the kingdom to the Father and then, again, making himself subject to the one... Who gave him the authority in the first place? And it shows the, the, the eternal subjection of God the Son to God the Father in his role as king, in authority over the eternal kingdom. Okay? but So, the point of the matter is here, is that the Bible has a lot to say about this eschatological stuff. Okay? And right in the most key gospel passage of the whole New Testament, namely 1 Corinthians 15, Right? You're familiar with that context. That's where Paul says, I remind you of first importance of the gospel we preach to you, 1 Corinthians 15.1. And then he goes on he starts talking about the resurrection and the, and the consummation of all things. And that's when he gets into this kind of language in 1 Corinthians 15. And at the, you remember at the end of the chapter he's saying, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Right? But we shall all be changed. Right? And, and there he's talking uh, again about the resurrection, right? But uh, the point of the matter is, is that this gospel that we're preaching of this kingdom has different stages of fulfillment in history. And you as a good minister of the gospel need to know that. You need to understand it. You need to understand at least the general categories of things that are, are really clear in the New Testament, okay, and, and, because people have a lot of questions about these things, you know, they got stuff out there in the world that they've seen that's come from Christians, and it's, you know, it, it may be right, it may be wrong, but what happens when they really want to know the answers, and they're really looking to God to try to get their life sorted out, and they want to, they, they, they God is dealing with their heart, and they want to be saved, and they have a whole load full of questions, right, how are we going to answer them, right, and and um, so the fact of the matter is, it's important that we would know these things. Jesus speaks in Matthew twenty four fourteen as this gospel of the kingdom. He says, "This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come." You see that? And so the kingdom is described in these three ways: it is the realm of God's authority, which is now broken into time and space in a certain spiritual way but has not yet reached its fulfillment. Jesus reigns as king from the right hand of God and is awaiting his enemies to be put under his feet. Let's see. I think I changed that last sentence. I did. See how I am? Then I didn't then I didn't print my own lesson for me. Uh. Okay, so that brings us to this topic, the second coming of Christ, okay? And I want to talk to you about the second coming of Christ from the perspective of the gospel. Are you with me? Now, I'm not going to go chase a whole bunch of eschatological rabbits here, okay? What I wanted to do is talk to you about the second coming of Christ, and and I, I want you to understand as a good gospel minister some things you need to know. Some things that are basic, things that are simple, things things that are are outlined clearly in the New Testament, okay? And because you know when you get into the study of eschatology, everybody wants to argue over all the fine points. Right? Well, what about the main points? You know, I'm assuming that most people in this room are premillennialists. Um could we do a show of hands? If you're a premillennialist, do you believe Christ will return before the millennium? Okay, I'd say that's most. Maybe there's a lot of undecideds there, but, but the fact of the matter is, if that's true, well, then we're all in the same camp. Well, what puts us in that camp? Well, we believe that Christ will return before the millennium if we're pre-millennial. If you're postmillennial. Please bear with me with great patience while I have this discussion. If you're pre-millennial, let's just call it pre-millennialism, okay? Then you believe that Christ will return and then he will establish his millennial kingdom on the earth. Okay, that's what pre-millennialism means. If you're non millennialism you don't believe there is a millennium, right? And that when Christ returns, he simply returns at this point in history and he consummates the ages at that point. Okay? If you're a post-millennialist, you believe that the church will evangelize the world and usher in the kingdom of God through the gospel and that Christ will return after the millennial period and that the millennial period is actually a time of peace where the gospel is reigning on the earth. Okay, that's post-millennialism. All right? Christ returns after the millennium. Okay, so I, guess I got a bunch of frowns. I guess nobody's a post-millennialist. <laughs> so, I'm sorry if you're a post-millennialist. I didn't mean to offend you. <laughs> There's actually some good post-millennials out there, believe it or not. So, um good in the sense that they got the gospel right, talking about its core, simple nature message, which is justification by faith alone, alone. by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Got that? Okay. You can can have that orthodox position and be in any one of these eschatological camps. Okay? Okay. So, uh, when we talk about the second coming of Christ in the gospel, Let me tell you something, we are warning people, because family, this thing, this second coming thing, is not going to be a pretty thing for most of the world. It's going to be the most terrible day that's ever happened in the course of history. Okay? We read about it there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Remember? Remember? The most horrific words in all of the Bible are spoken there. It's an unbelievable thing that what we're warning people of, we need to take it seriously. This is a serious thing. People's souls are at stake here. If people don't surrender their life to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, they are going to be banished from His kingdom forever in a place called outer darkness. And Jesus said, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. There's only one escape from that. It's the cross. You come to the cross through repentance and faith. There's no other way to be saved. That's the gospel we're preaching to people. And we're in this eschatological sense, this form of the gospel, we're warning people of this day that's yet to come. Right? It's a warning. We're saying, look, man, if you don't turn, the wrath of God is going to come upon you. Right? It's an important thing. So when you think about the second coming of Christ, it's important that you understand some basic things about it. An essential element of the gospel is that we preach Christ Jesus as Lord and King. We warn mankind to come voluntarily under his authority and rule before it is too late. And they die in their rebellion against him and faith him in judgment. Or he returns to establish his kingdom and they are found in their rebellion against him and then face him in judgment. We call mankind to repentance from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus in order to flee from the coming wrath. Okay, I gave you four or five scriptures there that that say that explicitly in the New Testament. When Christ returns, there will be several tasks at hand that he will accomplish. I have put them into four categories here for the sake of brevity. The warning that we give in the gospel embodies these inevitable and unavoidable events to come upon the entire world. Okay? So here's what I'm telling you. When we are preaching the gospel to people, and we're telling people how to be saved, we are also warning of this second coming of Christ. And when this second coming happens... I just outlined four categories for you. These, these four main things are going to happen. Okay, Number one, rescue and resurrection for God's people, his saints. Two, destruction of evil authorities. Three, the establishment of an earthly kingdom. And four, the consummation of the ages. Okay, so at the second coming of Christ, look, which is going to happen at one day in history, it's also going to last forever okay right now the kingdom of god has come into this time and space only in a certain degree or level of authority okay the same thing is going to happen again at the second coming christ is going to come he is going to take care of several tasks but again, the kingdom is only going to come by degree. This will not be the climax of the kingdom. Okay, The climax of the kingdom is going to be when he consummates the ages at the end of the millennial period. Okay, And, and so even at this point in history, the kingdom will not have reached its climax. Although it will be much further down the road in its fulfillment, it will it, sin will not be utterly abolished at this point yet. Because we know from Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 10, right, that right here is what's called the first resurrection and those who are Christ's, right? First resurrection is pictured there in Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6, and, and then it talks about they're going to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, right? Then at the end of the thousand years, what's going to happen? Satan's released and there's a great rebellion. He gathers the nations for war again. And they come and they gather for war. Here at the end of the millennial period, the nations gather for war under the influence of Satan to make war against Christ. So here's God himself sitting on a throne in Jerusalem ruling the nations for a thousand years and there's still sin in the hearts of men. Sin so brazen that it will rise up and wage war against the Lamb who's on the throne. Okay? Okay? And so, when that happens, of course, that's when what we call the Great White Throne Judgment happens, right? Christ overcomes them in this battle right here, right? Just like a big old giant stepping on a little worm, right? And um, and and then, of course, at that point in time, we have what's called the Second Resurrection, and all the wicked dead are raised and judged and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Okay? So at this point in history at the great white throne judgment, death and hell and everything that dies is going to be thrown into the lake of fire and utterly banished from the kingdom of God forever. Okay? At that point in history, sin will be no more. That's when we read Revelation 21 and 22. And there shall be no more mourning or crying or dying or pain. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any murderers or adulterers or thieves enter the city of God. Amen? Amen. And all liars, right? <laughs> That's a good one to keep the kids from lying. <laughs> Go read Revelation 21.8. <laughs> <Right? laughs> so, the reason I tell you these things is because when you start telling people, look, Jesus is going to come again, don't just be a pan-tribber, Okay? Don't just say, well, you know, I don't know much about all that. It's just all going to kind of work out whenever Jesus shows up and and be real flippant about those things. Let me tell you why not. Because we take the Word of God very seriously. And we have a very high view of Scripture. And the Bible is filled with knowledge and information about these things and tells us of it again and again and again at the pen of every writer. Just about. Are you with me? This isn't something we should just treat flippantly like it's all going to work out, okay? I understand it's a very complex thing, but it's something that we need to be learning about, okay? Turn off Bart Simpson and start reading your Bible. That's what I'm saying. And and I, I know that didn't uh, make anybody laugh because none of you do that. You do read your Bible. Praise God. Glorious thing, right? And so my point is don't waste your time on things that... Don't matter. Right? Instead, make the most of every opportunity and walk in wisdom as wise. Amen? Growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus and serving Him with all of our heart and walking in all of His ways and obeying His commandments and fulfilling His commandments. Our life has meaning. and has purpose. Amen? We don't waste our time. We give our time to the King in service to Him. Amen? So... What I'm going to do next week, I'm going to go through this, these four things about the second coming of Christ and just show you how we're probably all going to be in agreement on most of these things that I talk about because they are really clear in, in the New Testament. So that when you think about the second coming of Christ, there are some milestones in your in your mind like these periods in history that, that are, are, are very clear in the Scripture. That you have some answers to those questions. Okay, let's pray. God, our Father, we honor you, we bless you, and we praise you. God, we are in awe of your kingdom, and Lord of the things that you have spoken that are yet to be, we are in awe, even in fear, God, in reverence, uh, God. We we pray that you would help us to have courage and boldness, Father, to warn people. Lord, so many people perishing. Give us hearts of compassion. Give us boldness of speech. Give us pastoral hearts of concern, genuine concern for others. Fill us with your love and your kindness that we might minister it to those around us, that they might see Christ in us. We ask, Father, that you would make us good gospel ministers, even kings and priests that you've called us God. May our life look like kings and priests as we serve you in all holiness and righteousness. And Father, we just look to you in faith and we ask that you would fulfill all these good things in us because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen.